As a real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Their teams apply local insights and global perspectives to help identify the most compelling investing opportunities. Principal Asset Management, actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Joe Weisenthal. And I'm Tracy Alloway. So, Tracy, it seems, it seems. <laughs> You're going to jinx it. I know. It seems like the supply chain, I, it seems like the supply chain like crisis that people are, it kind of feels like that's over in my opinion. I mean, I, I definitely think we're seeing some of the bottlenecks that we yeah. spent the better part of 2020 and 2021 talking about. Those are starting to ease. Some of the import boom into the U.S. seems to be easing. There is yeah. this general shift from consumer goods to services, but it, it, things are still relatively busy but i i think yeah. i think they've settled down enough that we can start to talk about what we have learned from this whole saga absolutely i think so too i mean there are definitely air you know you still see like occasionally specific products will be in shortage um there are certain types of equipment and if you uh, read the surveys of like the ism or pmi surveys you still see manufacturers talk about difficulty getting certain things Electrical equipment seems to be up there, but the sort of like generalized shortage of everything, those like crazy lines we were seeing of boats at the ports and trucks at the ports and all that stuff. I kind of think that story is over. Right. And one of the the few good things that, that tends to come out of crises in general yeah. is that they offer you this opportunity to look at what exactly went wrong and why were things designed poorly? Is there stuff that we can do better in the future? And so now that some of these supply chain issues and transportation and shipping and logistical issues are starting to ease, we can go back and, and think about what we've learned, what we yeah. can do differently. And you raise a really good point, and which is that, you know, you have some crisis and there's always like, okay, what what should we fix? What could be done better? But on the other hand, you know, what about maybe not fix anything? Because, you know, once in a century pandemic, is that a good reason to completely upend the way the world does business? To me, it's like, let's just put it this way. It's not obvious to me that like, we won't eventually just return to 2019 pattern. Well, this is the other question I have because the industry that we've been talking about, the shipping and logistical industry, this is already incredibly cyclical, right? Yeah. So do they just look at 2020, 2021 and say like, well, that was a crazy yeah. cycle. Yeah. Now we can get back to our normal cycles and just do what we were doing before. And well, you know, we're mostly talking about the pandemic and the COVID disruptions. You know, there are other developments globally. There's the ongoing war in Europe. There's a heightening tensions between U.S. and China mm -hmm. politically. 
Um, there's the energy cost surge in Europe, which may not, you know, ease for a long time. So there are other things going on. Anyway, throughout the crisis, we've talked to this guest multiple times. So perfect time to get him back in. We are going to be speaking with Ryan Peterson. He is the founder and co-CEO of uh, Flexport. So Ryan, thanks for coming back on Odd Lots. And also, uh, are we right? Like, is the crisis phase of this over? Well, it depends who you are. I think for the average consumer in business, yeah, more or less past now. If you own uh, ships or planes, the the crisis might just be starting right oh, now really? because the prices of oh. well, the prices just come down. The price of freight has come down eighty percent. They were all making a lot of money, and now right. we kind of speed ran through one of those cycles that you're talking about. They usually take twenty years, and we did it in two, um, two or three. And so right now, I think we're looking at the opposite problem of. Uh, excess capacity there's too many there's going to be too many ships and and perhaps too many planes uh relative to the demand to ship things and so tracy and i have been joking that maybe our odd losses for 2023 (laughs) is just going to be take all the episodes we did in 2022 about how there's a shortage (laughs) and then just flip the signal to negative so oh plunging prices over capacity we'll just do all the episodes over again and change the direction arrow I've seen gluts that don't lead to a shortage, but I've never seen a shortage that doesn't lead to a glut. Yeah. So. so, Ryan, you mentioned um, that the crisis might just be beginning if you are actually, you know, a shipping company and you see your freight rates start to plunge. And this kind of brings me to something I wanted to ask you, which is we have seen a lot of these shippers make absolutely insane amounts of profit for mm. the past two or three years. I think the last number I saw was for the... Um, the third quarter of this year, it was net income of $59 billion for the global shipping industry, which is more than the $48 billion they made the year before and up from like a fraction of that pre-crisis. Uh, pre-COVID. Up from zero. Yeah, up from zero <laughs> or negative. So, I, I mean, what, what do they do with all that money is my first question. <laughs> do they just buy a bunch of new ships? Do they start to put Dividends. in like if, efficiency improvements or right? Do they return it all to their long suffering shareholders? Um, I think you've seen a little bit of each of those things and, and it depends on the company, which ones emphasize the most. So some have uh, a few of the ocean carriers have gone, been pretty aggressive in buying uh, freight forwarding businesses or e-commerce kind of fulfillment, trying to go more end to end, own assets on land that can kind of connect their ships and be able to yeah really provide that full factory to consumers' door experience. So you see that from uh, CMA and Maersk in particular. CMA is the big French ocean carrier. Um, Zim is the large. Uh, actually, they're kind of small, but all these companies are big. Um, that's an Israeli carrier, and they've been pretty aggressive in doing uh, dividends, returning cash to the share to the owners. Um, and MSC, which is now the world's largest carrier, has done a little bit of all these things as well, but they uh, also invested a lot in ships. And so they've become the largest carrier in the world by really investing in the fleet. So um, all those strategies are being done. A lot of these companies are private, so you don't really get to see everything right. that's, that's happening. Um, but and, and I think it's by nature because Wall Street really can't handle the cyclical. <laughs> they want quarterly consistency. They don't they're just kind of they can't handle these 10 years of losing money and then two years of printing money. It's just um, not something that sits well with public investors. So t- they tend to be private companies or in some cases state owned or kind of quasi state owned. Um, and where there's sort of sort of some national interest in having ocean carrier capacity. So, you know, obviously the big story, you know, 
the pandemic disruptions, the insane amount of demand for sort of like pure goods and the filling warehouses and filling ports, et cetera. But as I mentioned in the intro, there are some other pretty big things that have happened in the last two years, particularly uh, the war in Ukraine, which remains ongoing. And just like the clear ratcheting up of tensions with China. And you see these companies start to wonder like, well, what is the long term future of trading between China and the U.S.? And also, you know, related, I guess, to all of this is the surging cost of energy in Europe. Can you talk a little bit more about these other sort of like non-pandemic macro factors and like how much you see them like staying with us right now? Like how much are like businesses that you speak with every day sort of like thinking about whether these are sort of deeper long term trends? Well, the the manufacturing in China has been a long term trend as China's gotten richer. Their labor costs have gone up. It's probably a good thing for the Chinese people. Um, but manufacturers are kind of always seeking out that lower cost labor. So that's a that's a trend that's gone on for a decade or more, and the, the trade wars sort of brought more attention to it. And, uh, you know, the increase in tariffs probably caused some companies to reevaluate. And then the inconsistency of shipping and then kind of COVID, where there's different, if your factory is closing down, it makes it a little bit less reliable. So that's probably, probably had some marginal acceleration there, but I think it's a long term trend driven mostly by labor costs. Hmm. Um, now it's, uh, it, it's really the most important where labor is the, the limiting reagent or the hardest thing to find to execute these manufacturing jobs. So that tends to be kind of lower skilled, simpler stuff like apparel, which is largely shifted out towards um, Southeast Asia and Sri Lanka. But um, some of the stuff like consumer electronics, it's just this, this whole ecosystem there that's in Shenzhen right. and around that's very hard to move those factories. So I, I think um, it's kind of overblown some of the heat on this stuff. Like we traded traded more with China in the last couple of years than ever. Um, right. And so it's, it's like a nice narrative, but I don't know that it bears out in the data. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff, the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Can I ask a really basic question before we go any further? But when when we talk about spot rates in shipping and, you know, we mentioned that they went up a lot during the pandemic and now they're starting to come back down. How much do those actually matter for global trade? Because my understanding is that if you're a big, um, you know, manufacturer or just someone who ships a lot of goods, you're probably going to have a contract in place that might be different to the spot rate. And you're also going to be renewing that 
that contract on maybe maybe a yearly basis. So it seems like there there's perhaps a lag in in how long it takes the a, a decrease in spot rates to feed through to actual shipping rates. Yeah, that's exactly right. I, I don't have the stat in front of me, but I want to say it's like about. 60 or 70 percent of freight containerized freight moves on annual contracts mm. and, and 30, 30 or 40 on the spot market i'm not i'm not 100 percent sure but that's like where my brain settles in on it um and so that that spot rate isn't yeah it doesn't flow through immediately to the PL of the carriers sometimes people don't honor the, ca- the contract um and mm. a lot of people if they you know if they see these contracts are kind of gentlemen's agreements handshake yeah like, that's the impression we get it's a repeat game. So if you if you don't honor your contract this year, people are going to really hesitate to sign a good contract with you next year. Or that, you know, so it's 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 not something that it's not necessarily legally enforced. People aren't really suing each other very often over these things. Although with the with the level of price, you know, you've seen more probably lawsuits against carriers and freight forwarders in the last couple of years than hmm. than ever because people are so upset about how things played out. Um, but in general, it's a, people do honor their contracts even when the spot market drops below. But not always, and in any case, it is a lag, so it's putting a lot of pressure. Contract renewal season in ocean freight for the United States is going to be in April or May uh, each year, kind of March through May, and that's coming around the corner, and people are looking at these spot markets and saying, you know, that's clearly going to be the driver in price of where the where the contract market settles in. So the, the pain for the carriers probably comes after this contract season, and it's going to be, a, there's, you know, a really interesting kind of economic thing theory in practice to get to watch and see what plays out. Yeah, I believe, um, you know, we've talked to Craig Fuller from Freight Waves a few times. I think he, at least in trucking specifically, he sort of likened it to, uh, you know, the deal you have with your babysitter where it's like, okay, I'll pay you this every, you know, 150 every Friday or whatever. But if you change it, it's not like anyone's going to sue. You just sort of like expect that that's like the arrangement. And so you just sort yeah. of keep it, but it doesn't no. necessarily mean that some, you know, the babysitter doesn't show up one day and she says, oh, it doesn't mean you're going to like sue your babysitter. Yeah, there's there's just a lot more babysitters in the world than there are ocean carriers. Okay. So you <laughs> don't want to burn bridges, you know. There's yeah, only, right. So- 10 or, 10 or 12. I don't know. Old. You know, there are, you know, even babysitters right now, at least in New York <laughs> as, City. As are a former not, babysitter, they're I do not, not that, approve I, of, of breaking can, their right, contractual can, relationships. You know, there are a lot of parents in New York City who have a hard time finding a babysitter right now. So I think you really want to be careful about burning that relationship as well. Yeah, okay, okay. Maybe there's more similarity there. Okay. Uh, but yeah, it is. there's only 10 or 12 ocean carriers that matter that have any real scale. They probably represent 95% of the containers moved in the world. And so it's, you know, you don't want to be breaking your contract because you, do that once and yeah. you know, you're know you're down to nine. And, and there are there are a number of these big companies that come around and they're basically when, when you get to be above about 5,000 containers a year that you're shipping, it makes sense for a company to contract directly with that ocean carrier rather than working with the freight forwarder to buy the freight. Uh, and But there are some big companies that buy from freight forwarders and when you dig in, you find out oh, it's because they like dishonored all their contracts and no <laughs> carrier wants to work with them anymore. Well, I mean, this is something I wanted to ask you because I think um, one of the things we learned from our, our very first episode with you, which was um, you were basically walking us through why I was having so much trouble getting half a container from Hong Kong um, to Los Angeles as an experiment um, in shipping congestion. But one of the things we learned was that a lot of this business is relationship driven. Um, and we used to joke about like Sven in Sweden, right? Yeah, you know, right. the Sven who like <laughs> operates some port somewhere and you can maybe get some extra room. But for the past couple of years, 
Has the industry become more relationship driven? Is it more important to have these direct relationships with the shippers themselves? Or has the crisis sort of opened up opportunity for that behavior to begin to change? I think the last two years, relationships probably mattered more than ever because when capacity is tight and there's no space on the ship, it's who, who's been a best customer for these people over the long term, who plays golf. With it's not Sven and Sweden, by the way. It's it's Lars in Copenhagen. Oh, I'm oh, sorry. Yeah. It was Lars <laughs> in Lars Copenhagen. Copenhagen. <laughs> sorry, I'm getting my my Nordic the names Danish, mixed up. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm just joking. Um, uh, you know, so I think for the last, when when capacity's tight very little else matters in the world than what's your relationship? Are you a profitable customer? How long have you been a profitable customer? What's your consistency? So being, being able to bring freight every single week and not cancel, um, that those things start to matter a lot more. When, when space is wide open, if there's excess capacity, sort of like, hey, you know, you don't need a relationship. We need to sell some more cargo. So I think um, that, that, that dynamic is going to shift. And, the, you know, we went through a real long period from 2015 until 2019, 2020, really, 20, at the beginning of the pandemic, when it, when it kicked in, uh, of just excess capacity in ocean right. freight. And then we had two years of extremely tight capacity. And it looks like we're, we're right in the midst of a real um, a, a freight recession, call it, um, where there's less, sh- less container shipping than, than really even before the pandemic. Oh wow! Okay, that's the title. There, there's our title for yeah. this episode: the Great Recession that's coming to container shipping. Thank you. In container shipping, yeah. Now it might be good news for people who have to ship containers. Like all of a sudden, the price is way down, and you can get space, and you can, you know, have some sanity about it all. But okay, so we went from glut to extreme scarcity to glut again, and not just uh, glut, but also like a sort of like very like poor demand. Can you talk about um, the energy component? Like this is like a fascinating thing, like the, the gap say between how much it costs to manufacture goods in Europe versus the US due to the gap in electricity prices. Do you see that re- reshaping trade flows or is this become another one of these things where it's like, it's kind of a fun story and we talk about it in the media, but in the end, like it's hard, you know, kind of like a, the world doesn't reorient that fast and ultimately finds a way to sort of go back to the old normal. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little too early to say. It seems obvious just looking at the numbers that yeah. like manufacturing in Germany doesn't make sense at these energy prices. Uh, does the government come in and subsidize the energy to allow them to maintain the the manufacturing, which has employed so many people and kind of been the yeah. the, the engine of the European Union as a whole? Like, I think they probably will. And so then it starts to be really hard to predict how things play out because once you have government coming in and intervening in the market, then, uh, you know, a lot of the market... Um, theory that kind of breaks down and I I don't really know what will happen. But with those prices, like manufacturing in Germany, this doesn't make a ton of sense. The U.S. has such an advantage on energy right now. So just going back to the past couple of years, I'm curious whether or not you saw either shippers or people related to the shipping industry and transportation and logistics more generally, whether you saw them do things that made the whole process more efficient. And I remember in our various discussions mm. on this topic, there there seemed to be a lot of low-hanging fruit for the industry. And I think you had one, um, one figure when we first talked to you talking about how most container ships on average are only 70% full. So it would seem like just put more containers on the ship and we could maybe fix some of the backlog. But did stuff like that actually happen? Because all of these things, they seem so simple, but then when when you actually go and try to fix them, it often ends up 
my impression is it often ends up being more complicated than you expected. Right. Well, actually, that stat is that um, the containers themselves are only 70 percent full. Oh, so there you go. The ships uh. are full, but the inside of the containers are not optimized. Um, did the containers no, I, get we, more full? Did they? Yeah. They, did they get better no. at packing them? Surprisingly, no. And if anything, it might have gotten worse because huh. which is a really interesting counterintuitive thing. But if you, it, but it sort of makes sense when you think about the psychology of it all is like, OK, you're having a hard time getting a space on a ship. You finally get one. Just you're not going to sit there and try to optimize the inside oh, of the container. You're just like, just whatever you got now, just throw it in there and let's go. Mm. Um, which, you know, it's sort of counterintuitive because yeah. you think like, oh, this thing's really scarce. We've got to really optimize our capacity. But you may not have that luxury because you're, you know, you're just scrambling to get space on a ship. Um, so, no, we haven't seen a lot of progress on that metric. We, um, it's we're, we're not seeing. I, I can't say that I saw material changes in the infrastructure in our ports to enable them to like handle a surge in capacity if that ever happens again. Um, the appointment systems haven't improved the technology for getting, <laughs> um, for, for picking up trucks, you know, for, for picking up containers for getting trucks in and out of there hasn't improved. Um, we've got a, a, the West coast union, it's called the ILWU international long-term and warehousing unions. Um, they, they're operating without a contract right now. So their contract expired this summer. Uh, those negotiations are ongoing. I don't have any intel what's happening there, but um, but I have heard that their main um, the main thing that they want is is to not have more automation in the ports. So I don't see that kind of like coming that we're going to get a lot more automation to be able to handle a surge in these in the area. Um, so in general, I would say the infrastructure is is the same. It's not gotten any better. Wait, didn't you you famously went? to Long Beach, and I think you rented like a boat so that you could observe how things were actually being loaded and unloaded at the port. And wasn't there a change as a result of that trip? Weren't they like stacking, I think, two containers on top of each other and you you made it or you suggested that they start stacking them higher and they ended up doing that? Yeah. Yeah. So um, we I, I went down there to explore like what's really happening here in the ports. Why is this backlog of 100 ships going out here? Uh, people are like, why? Oh, you're so great. You know, like, so in I don't know what the words they use, but really in creative or something. Go down there and like do that. I'm like, it's kind of my job. I got all my customers' cargo stuff there. I got to figure out what's happening, you know? Um, and so what we figured out was that the, the trucking yards around the port were only allowed to stack containers too high. And then after that, they had to just leave the containers on the chassis. That's the trailer that holds the containers around. So then we ran out of trailers, ran out of chassis to go pick up more containers. And so you had this huge backlog that, that created. So the city of Long Beach, I, 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 tweet, I did a tweet storm about that at 6 a.m. 3 p.m. The city of Long Beach changed the zoning law to allow <laughs> stacking up to four high. A, a true um, hero. That's pretty impactful. It's, uh, I'm told it's the fastest response to a citizen action <laughs> in the history of government on all human civilization. did you also bring the workers years. tacos? That was, yeah, the week prior, we oh. brought the labor union tacos to try to interview these guys and learn what was happening. That's where we found out that the truckers are missing their appointments. And then we found out the reason the truckers are missing the appointments is because they don't have any chassis. They don't have the trailers to go pick them up. So that that zoning law did have an impact. However, it was only the, the city of Long Beach and Los Angeles didn't follow suit. Right. All the other Southern mm. California cities didn't follow suit. And, and Long Beach doesn't have that many trucking yards in it. So it kind of had a marginal benefit, but not not dramatic. Um, 
And I think it was kind of around the edges in the first place. Like what we really need is why does it, why do these truckers need appointments in the first place? Mm. Like uh, they should, there should be a system where they just show up and we give them the container and then the mobile app tells them where to go. Um, so Flexport has implemented that in a couple of terminals for our own cargo. Uh, but for the wider industry, they haven't done anything like that. All right. I'm not trying to blow up any future Ryan Peterson presidential ambitions with this question. You know, down there at the ports, giving tacos to the uh, workers, <laughs> all things of a future, you know, could be a, a, a career in public service one day. But your honest take in terms of the difference between unionized versus automated ports, what you've seen around the world, uh how, in your view, like how costly is it from a sort of economic perspective, if at all, to have this sort of level of unionization that we have uh, at the U.S. ports versus what uh, I believe are more automated ports elsewhere? You know, it's, it's hard to unpack the, the effect of the union, whether it's automation or just like management style mm. and the adversarial relationship between the union and the and the employers um and the managers like it's it's a very strange um you know my company is not unionized and I, it wouldn't work if it was because this idea that a, a person who manages people is like a different person it's like you can't you can't relate to each other and um and, and so very specifically what happens at the ports in the on the west coast at least is that um the management, the companies have to say, the terminals say every day, how many employees, how many workers do they need the next day? And then the union furnishes that many workers, but they're oh. different people every time. Um, they move around between the different terminals. So there's no, and then the team has to reform every day and you're operating heavy equipment with new people doing new jobs without adequate training in many cases. Um, and it, it's just kind of a crazy way to work if you think about it. Like the, the, the kind of the core element of running a company and running an operation is that you take the team and you go, what did we learn yesterday and what are we going to do better today? And like, you can't have those conversations because it's new people every day. Um, and so I, I, it's hard to unpack like how much of the U S port inefficiency is from just like a weird structure that's put in, in terms of how the workers work with the management. And I'm not blaming the union for that, by the way, it's like, why the management, I don't know. There's just this adversarial hmm. relationship between management and union that, that needs to get worked through. Um, and now, look, I'm an outsider. I don't. I haven't worked in a port, so I, I, I'm sure these guys will criticize me and tell me I have no idea what I'm talking about. But, um, but then the automation um, piece is like a money saving thing for the operators. I don't know how much efficiency gains come out of it versus just like, hey, the union workers are really well paid, and you didn't have any of them that you could make more money running a port um, and, and lower the cost of shipping goods for sure. Uh, it costs about. They, the terminals charge about six hundred dollars to unload the container. Um, that and I don't know. It's like takes thirty seconds for a crane to go like that. So it, it does seem like a, a pretty high tax to put on the world. Um, China is about a hundred bucks. And I, some of that is because they have lower labor costs, but a lot of it's because they've got more automation. As a leading real estate manager, Principal Asset Management harnesses the power of a 360-degree perspective, delivering local insights and global expertise across public and private equity and debt. Our experienced teams are uniquely positioned to uncover compelling opportunities in today's market, giving our clients an exclusive advantage. Principal Asset Management actively invested. Learn more at principalam.com. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Principal Asset Management SM is a trade name of Principal Global Investors, LLC. 
Hey there, it's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I was about to ask, can you talk to us about non-U.S. ports and what Mm -hmm. they're doing there just to give us a sense of what is possible here? Yeah, and what is possible, by the way, like Rotterdam has been a fully automated port for something like 25 years uh, with with self-driving trucks like for 25 years ago because they don't need that much kind of just follow a white line on the tape. There's no people to run into. So it's it's a real, it doesn't need like really advanced AI or anything. Um, and they're a worker friendly place. Like, I don't think people are thinking like, oh, the Dutch are this like terrible, you know, like fascist place where workers have no rights. Like, I'm pretty sure that the workers in the Port of Rotterdam do okay. Um, so it is, you know, there are other things that are other ways of working that are possible and people can get along with with investments in, in robotics. And I think it's really important for civilization that we like keep improving the efficiency of the way we ship stuff. Um, globalization and was really powered by the shipping container. We lowered the cost of shipping things by 95% or more. We lifted like something like a billion people out of poverty through uh, largely in Asia, but the ability for anybody to trade with anybody has created huge economic benefit. Uh, and we kind of like stop there and go, hey, we don't need any more of that. We're just like, have uh you know we'll stop with the robotics thing and the container is fine we don't need to optimize the inside of the container or the way the containers are picked up um so it's it's disappointing to me as someone who would like to see more growth in the world i'm sort of a single issue voter on economic growth i'd like to see though if we were all twice as rich i feel like we'd be able to solve most of the other problems that are out there going back to you know the 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 struggles that you believe uh, container shippers are going to face. Like, what are they going to do? I mean, we talked a little bit about what they're going to do with all the money that they made in the last two years. But like, what do you see are some of the ways they're going to navigate if we go through this sort of uh, down, you know, it's say 2023 is like kind of a bust for them. We're going to see consolidation. Like, what are we going to see out of that? I mean, it's a really fascinating thing to watch. Like, I I get to be kind of front row seated in the game a little bit. Um, They did make a lot of money. and yet nobody likes to lose money no matter how much they have you don't want to sit there and lose money so they've returned a lot of it to shareholders uh they're investing in new business lines but at the end of the day if the price goes down below the cost you know below their cost they start bleeding cash like how long do you bleed cash what happens you've already had a huge amount of consolidation during the prior glut like when flexport started there were 23 major ocean carriers we're down to 10 or 12 depending on how you count them today so there's been a lot of consolidation. I don't know if there's that much room for more consolidation to as weak players go bankrupt, maybe some of them get bought up. Um, and there might be some bankruptcies. People might walk away, say, hey, like we made tons of money. We don't you know, let this thing go. Um, but they also largely paid down their debts. So I don't know that they have a huge amount of debt to default on in the first place. Hmm. So very interesting to see. Um, there are a couple of factors that might change this trajectory. Mm-hmm. Um, one is that the, the consumer is actually still pretty strong in the United States. Like right. container volumes are way down, but actually consumers spending is not gone down on even on goods. Um, services has gone way up, but the goods spending has stayed elevated. Um, 
So maybe there's a world where the consumers continue to spend goods and those trade volumes will come back up. Um, one reason to think about why, why trade volumes have gone way down in the last quarter is that transit times improved, right? And so it was taking 120 days to get a container from China to the US at peak. I mean, it used to be 40. We're back down to like 50 or 60 days. Hmm. And so if all of a sudden you have your, your ships go 60 days faster than you thought they were going to go, you're going to have two months of extra inventory in stock in the United mm, States. Right. And then you're like, hey, I don't need to order more stuff. Hmm. But you're going to sell through that inventory if the consumer stays strong. And then you should have. So, you know, I think the carriers are really hoping that January, February, April, May, you know, the next few months, people start reordering. The factories start uh, producing more and the companies start ordering more goods to get to get them in, into the country. So there's some hope there that the consumer stays strong and that all the recession talk is overblown. Um, they have another thing on supply side that's coming down the pipeline, so, uh, meaning the, the supply side, meaning the capacity for shipping, the number of ships that are out there. And they're, um, you, you sort of the big factors are how many ships are there, what's their capacity, and how fast do they go? Um, and under this thing, um, the International Maritime Organization, that's the division of the United Nations that oversees, it's kind of the governance body for ocean freight. Um, they have a rule that kicks in in two weeks on January 1st that the ships uh, must reduce their carbon emissions by 13%. And the only way to do that for an internal combustion engine is to just go slower. Right. Um, and so all these ships are going to start slow steaming. We estimate that if uh, they have to go 30% slower than their max speed in order to hit that target. Um, now, it turns out there a lot of them are already going slower in order to kind of rein in capacity and, and lower fuel costs. So our economists estimate this is going to be a 4 to 6% reduction in capacity hmm. uh, um, that will start in January. So that may, you know, that may rein in some of it as well. On the counter side, though, during this boom and, and in years prior, these uh, ocean carriers ordered a lot of ships. So over the next three years, you're going to see a 25% increase in container capacity as new ships come online and those orders were already placed and the ships are in construction. So um, from where I sit, it looks like the price has to go down a lot and then the carriers will go back to the old world. And I think, you know, there's a lot of hate spewed at these ocean carriers the last few years, but those of us been in the industry, I know, Hey, this was an ugly business. They lost money for a long time. Mm -hmm. They're gonna, you know, they're gonna fail if they can't make money. They made money. It, it comes in waves, as as it turns out. They made a lot of money for a couple of years. They may lose money for a lot of a long time coming up. And hopefully, you know, they they're in it for the long run as these kind of family businesses and national businesses that they're willing to ride out a downturn because they know the upsides can be so good when when they come. Tracy, I'm kind of fascinated by that point about uh, environmental regulations as de facto uh, capacity curbing mechanisms it's like though if they're all the rules are imposed at once then they sort of can solve the game theory of uh limiting capacity <laughs> um i just want to go back to that cyclical point um because we know that shipping itself is a very cyclical industry and it's gone from basically bust to a massive massive like historical uh boom but You've spoken about this before, the sort of like the pressures of short termism on the broader business cycle. So this idea that everyone's obsessed with making money, with generating return on equity, um, everyone moved to just in time inventory and things like that, which 
kind of contributed to the bottleneck because you don't have a lot of stuff on hand when suddenly demand starts to spike. Have you seen any progress from that perspective? Like, did anyone in business, in manufacturing, in retail, learn from the experience of 2020 and 2021 that actually maybe Mm. we want to move to some sort of more resilient model? It's... um I, I assume some people learn. A lot of companies have you know more inventory than ever right now. I'm not sure how much of that is planned versus like, hey, the transit time sped up and they're, they're they've got more inventory than they want right now. Um, the there is a bit of a Darwinian function in economies, right? The people who play the, over the long game, uh, those people who do it right should come out ahead and win. Um, but it's difficult because you know you. In the meantime, you have too many too many assets. Uh, you're not earning a return on assets as a CEO. You get you get canned, um, and and or you go bankrupt because assets are not free. And so, can you even you know? Actually, the great reminder here is uh, Hanjin, which is a Korean ocean carrier mm-hmm. that went bankrupt in in 2016. And if they would have just held on for six more years somehow, <laughs> they would have made like 25. Fifty billion dollars yeah. in profit the last two years, and uh, uh, um, and so you know they might have had the right strategy. They had the right assets; they were ready, but they couldn't um, they couldn't survive to, to see the strategy through. So it's really difficult to just stand from the outside and say, "Oh, everybody should have more assets on the balance sheet." And yet, uh, and yet there are there is a competitive advantage to doing that. Amazon has kind of proven this. Very interesting to see how eBay still 30 years later hasn't responded to like amazon opening up its own fulfillment centers and running a logistics network and mm. kind of dominating in e-commerce and ebay is still like no we just like our marketplace for used you know junk like i don't know it seems like there's an opportunity that <laughs> that's missed in going to invest in assets that is on uh, many many companies are afraid to do all right so the uh the big lesson of the last two years is here comes another downturn and no one actually learned any lessons or going to do any business any differently. Everyone's going to go back to just in time, manufacture in China, manufacture. It's all we're just is it same old, same old. It's what that's it, kind of like my takeaway from all this. Wait, can I, I just on this point? The ports, wait, 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 wait. Are, the ports aren't going to get any more automated. But just on this like, point, <laughs> at a minimum, we've spent the past two years talking about supply issues and the sort of hidden like plumbing of the global economy. Has that not translated into anything <laughs> tangible? I, I don't know. You know, I think never underestimate the ability of human beings to forget terrible things that happen. <laughs> I love uh, it. <laughs> uh, we got some good episodes out of it all. Uh, no, <laughs> I, I, think, I, I think there'll be more discussion of it. Um, no, but always, not always. Like Washington has taken some action to do some things that actually are valuable. Um, now ocean carriers have to provide the date uh, and a, of when a container is made available. Uh, which seems like, yeah, like that's a reasonable regulation to require that they can tell us exactly when this container was available. Because you remember, you only have seven days to pick up the container after it's available before you start paying daily fines. Oh, right. I forgot about that. And if they can't tell you when it's available, it's precisely like, how are they going to, what ground truth do you have to base those fines on? So that was one of the things that came out of the Ocean Shipping Reform Act that Washington passed. That one seemed pretty sensible. The rest of it, I... I haven't seen a big impact, but that one, it's a good rule, in my opinion. Um, so, but sometimes, you know, Washington wants to take action and uh, action. You get a group of people in a room and say, you have to do something. You will definitely do something, but not whether that thing is valuable or not is like big, big question mark. Mm-hmm. 
Ryan Peterson, co-CEO of Flexport, thank you so much for coming back on Oblons. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I thought that last point, Tracy, never un- was it never underestimate humans' ability to forget. It's like kind of bad and good. I think I don't think I'd say kind of a neutral thing. Like, okay, we wish some things got fixed, but on the other hand, all right, maybe just move on. I think it's kind of bad, Joe. <laughs> I mean, I I started this episode at trying to be on an upbeat note yeah. that maybe we have learned something <clears throat> from this crisis, but I I mean. I don't know. It, Ryan had some examples of stuff that had changed, yeah. that he had actually affected change personally, like stacking containers. In one, in one, in one day. Sort so, of modest-sized port, yeah. they did add an extra layer of stacking. That's so true. some things are possible, it seems, but it, it does feel like the cyclical nature of shipping means that a lot of people are just yeah. going to look through the past couple of years and just be like, well, you know, it was kind of abnormal. It was an abnormal boom, but it's not unusual that we get these booms followed by these big busts. And, the, you know, the fact that they all made, went out and made these big orders, mm. like, did they start believing it too, that uh, something is going to be fundamentally changed, the permanent bust. And so it does seem like the overcapacity story is really like staring us in the face for 2023. Yeah, it seems like the thing that, that would help would be if, if, there was some sort of floor put under some of these well, cycles. That's what, like, like, you know, you want, I mean, that's like when he said like, okay, the environmental regulations yeah. kind of do have that effect. Like, okay, if you mandate, if you put out some uh, uh, emissions mandate and the only way to hit that emissions mandate is for everyone to get slower. No one is going to sort of voluntarily get slower mm. if there's no force. But you can see how these sort of curbs might have an effect of like solving some of these capacity problems, solving some of like the game theory that otherwise would automatically result in a race to the bottom. Yeah. All right. Well, we've done our, our shipping bust episode. I guess yeah. maybe in, in two or three years, we'll do another boom episode. Yeah. Hopefully not <laughs> under like pan- global pandemic conditions. Hopefully, hopefully something, not. Hopefully something else. Yeah. But we'll just keep marking uh, all the turns in the cycle. Sounds good. Shall we leave it there? Let's leave now? it there. Okay. This has been another episode of the Odd Lots podcast. I'm Tracy Alloway. You can follow me on Twitter at Tracy Alloway. And I'm Joe Weisenthal. You can follow me on Twitter at The Stalwart. Follow our producer, Carmen Rodriguez, on Twitter at Carmen Armin. Follow our guest, Ryan Peterson. He's at TypesFast. And follow all of the Bloomberg podcasts on Twitter under the handle at podcasts. And for more Odd Lots content, go to Bloomberg.com slash Odd Lots, where we post transcripts, Tracy and I blog, and we publish a once-week newsletter every Friday that you can go there and sign up to get it in your inbox. Thanks for listening. there. It's Joe Weisenthal. And Tracy Alloway. And we are the co-hosts of the Odd Lots podcast. And we want to tell you about a new podcast here at Bloomberg we're really excited about. Money Stuff, the podcast. That's right. Friend of the pod, Matt Levine, is teaming up with our other friend and Bloomberg TV host, Katie Greifeld, to bring the Money Stuff newsletter to life. Every Friday, Matt and Katie will dive into all the Wall Street finance and other things that make Matt's newsletter such a hit. 
You can listen to Money Stuff the Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.